Acts chapter 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So you may have heard at the reading that we are actually going to begin our series on 1 Thessalonians in the book of Acts. thought that would be fitting. And so uh, I, I thought it would be helpful to see the context of Paul's 
Paul's words to the, the Thessalonians in his introduction. Here is really my theme for really the book and today's message. It is because of the powerful work of the Spirit that has taken place in the Thessalonian church. It's because of the surety of that work, the fruit of that work. Paul is able to be extremely confident that God will continue to work in these people as they await Jesus Christ's return. And so this passage not only teaches us of what we ought to see in the gospel, but after having received the gospel, what should become our chief hope, our chief desire, our chief aim. I want to look at five major ideas. First, we're going to spend a few moments looking at Paul and Silas's preaching in the city of Thessalonica. And then we will move to his introduction, his thanksgiving, and the assurance that he has of God's work among them. Then his commendation of their authenticity of faith and how they began to imitate not only the apostles, but also the Lord Jesus himself. Then I want to examine what it means, and in fact, this is probably what I hope, if you were to take away one idea from this sermon, I would hope this would land, that they have been delivered powerfully from idolatry to serve the living and the true God, and how that was not a choice of the Thessalonians. They were not looking to do that when Paul and Silas's team arrived. They were merely living estranged from God, not able to see who he is. And therefore, through the preaching of the gospel, as it has a powerful transformation, they themselves switch from looking for things to serving God, to loving God, to wanting God. And then finally, at the close of each of the chapters of 1 Thessalonians, Paul makes a appeal or a reference or a mention of the awaiting of the return of Jesus Christ. As Paul continued their as Paul and Silas continued their missionary journey, they came to a city called Thessalonica and they preached from the scriptures. Whenever we hear in the book of Acts that the apostles were preaching from the scriptures, in the synagogues, they do not mean they were preaching from the Gospels. Most likely, the Gospels had not been written. Very clearly, the epistles have not been written. So when Paul and Silas preach from the Scriptures, they preach from the Old Testament. This is often a very shocking thing for us as Christians in the West when we are so malnourished on the Old Testament and so fat on the New Testament and we're so out of balance that we hear the word they preach from the scriptures and we think, oh, they're going John 3.16. But at this time, Paul and Silas are appealing to a Jewish audience, members of their nation, members of their ethnicity, and they appeal to them in the writings that they had. The, the, the scripture, it literally means the writings, which they considered to be handed down by God through the prophets. And so Paul and Silas are appealing to the Thessalonians, the Jews and the Greeks among them, first the Jews, then the Greeks, they are appealing from the Old Testament that the Christ had to suffer. Acts 17 verse two, Paul went in as was his custom. This was the way of approaching. Their, their strategy for moving throughout the Mediterranean world, the Roman Empire, was they would come into a Greek city or a Hellenized city, 
a city that exhibited Greek and Roman culture with some Jewish influence or some Jewish section or, or segment of the society, they would first go to the Jew and then to the Greek. They would first make their appeal to God's people. As Paul explains in the book of Romans, they have right to the covenant. And so he would then present the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He would demonstrate from the Old Testament that the Lord Jesus, as he has come, has been revealed to be the Christ. And we saw that last week, that that the Lord Jesus was not made the Christ. He was revealed to be the Christ through his resurrection from the dead. And this is what Paul did and the rest of his team in every place. They explained and proved What a wonderful corrective for our world today that you can definitively prove something from the Bible. Oh, brother, that's just your interpretation. No, Paul proved it. These are are words of surety, of assurance, of confidence. In the postmodern era today, in in postmodernism, we have jettisoned truth. And we have created an awareness in the culture of subjectivity. And we have divided up the scriptures so that we become the judge. But rather, scripture must judge us. This is why Paul was able to prove. He was able to, through the Holy Spirit, enabling him to understand and expound and declare the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. He said not only was Jesus the Messiah, but it was necessary for him to suffer and to rise from the dead. And we know as Christians that those two great things, to suffer, to take the wrath of God for sin, and to rise from the dead so that he could be demonstrated, vindicated as righteous, and that his eternal life might be communicated to his people. Those two things are, as Paul explained and proved, were necessary. They were necessary for us After some time, the unbelieving Jews create a riot. We know from the book of Acts that they had spent at least three Sabbaths. It could be the case that the riot came at the tail end of the fourth week they were there, depending on how you read. Notice the persistence of Paul to come back over and over again. Sometimes in our evangelistic efforts, we give it one shot and we, we bank everything on a momentary persuasion or an emotional appeal that might hook someone's heart. No, Paul spends three or maybe four weeks in the synagogue convincing, arguing, making an appeal that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. These unbelieving Jews became jealous that these Christians were taking a... Uh, a realm of authority, the people, just as we see in the Gospels, as the people begin to follow this uh, revealed Messiah, the unbelieving Jews create a riot, and they go and get, as, as Luke records, some of the rabble of the city. What a wonderful phrase. I, I hope to never be counted among the rabble. Verse 6, and when they could not find them, they're looking for the apostles, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities. Before we read the next few, their quote, I just want to say it's a very dangerous thing to get doctrine from quotes that are not, that where that doctrine is not also conferred in other places. What do I mean by this? We, we hear uh, the, the demons cry out, we are legion, and now we make a doctrine about what we have to ask demons their names or, or some weird thing like that. 
Uh, it's very dangerous to take one quote, especially when it's from the enemy, and use that to inform our doctrine. However, I'm going to do that because I have just cause to do that in this passage. But I just wanted to say a caveat that as we do this in a minute, don't take that as any time there's a quote, that means it's true. Just, just for the record. They said to the city authorities, the unbelieving Jews accuse the apostles of something. They say, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. My question is this, why did the Thessalonian Jews accuse the Christians of preaching against the authority of the Roman leader? If you're unaware, Caesar is the title that was given to the emperor. Caesar is not a person. In fact, there were many people who had the title Caesar. First, it was Julius Caesar. Some of you may have read that play by Shakespeare. Maybe you know who he is. He was murdered in the Senate. Uh, the famous quote, et tu Brute, he, where Caesar is saying that even Brutus joined in in their conspiracy. But then his son, Augustus Caesar, and then we go through the, the titles and through the lines. Something that was unique to Julius Caesar was taking on that title, Caesar or emperor, high king is what you could translate it as. He took on another title, not just Caesar. Julius, Augustus, Tiberius, all of the rest of the emperors after Julius Caesar began to take on a title, not just Caesar, but another title, Divi Filius, which in the Latin just means a divine son. If you remember that word Filius, perhaps you've, you've heard that phrase before. Those both within and without Rome, those inside of the city of Rome and in the Roman Empire, began to worship the emperor as a god. They would pray to him. They would bow down before statues and images of him, not only bronze busts, but also pictorial representations. And they would offer up incense. If you remember from both the Old Covenant and in the book of Revelation, incense is related to prayer. The Romans worshipped Caesar as a divine son of God. In Rome, therefore, statism, the doctrine of the state as being God or the state as total, was the central religion around which all of the other pagan systems were centered. So in the Roman culture, they saw Rome and the greatness of the city, uh, the foundation myth of Romulus and Remus being raised by a pack of wolves to found the city, uh, the, the emperor coming down like uh, Heracles or, or uh, some other uh, myth being seen as a god, all of these things were central to Roman political identity. These things were the center of what the Roman system was built upon. The strength and might of Rome was what was worshipped. Not only was Rome seen as powerful as she would come in and destroy the other kingdoms around her, but then after destroying the other kingdoms, she would grant graciously the peace of Rome upon that culture. It was called at the time and to this day, it's called the Pax Romana, this period of hundreds of years in which because Rome killed the other armies, they made wars cease. They didn't make them cease by pacifying. They made peace by demolishing and annihilating. Therefore, what 
is it that these Jews are accusing the Christians of doing? The Jews who stirred, stood, stirred up this crowd clearly knew the implications of what the announcement of the Messiah was. While the apostles were not seditious, that is, they weren't, they weren't trying to cause a revolution, their preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ was total. It did not leave room for someone who was a Roman or a Jew in the Roman Empire to continue to worship Caesar and to recognize him as a god. The apostles clearly showed that being the resurrected and ascended son of God, Jesus Christ is not just the king of the Jews. Remember, we have to be careful when there are little quotes in the Bible. What is the placard put upon the cross by Pilate? It's the king of the Jews. But guess what? He was wrong. When Jesus died upon that, Christ, he, uh, on that cross, he was being anointed king over all. That's exactly what he began to do. He was beginning to take his reign at the cross. It's an interesting fact, actually, in the Gospels. He never allows himself to be called king until the cross. Having received all authority on the earth, Christ then commissions his witnesses to go as ambassadors and to proclaim the gospel to every tribe and nation. And they proclaim a gospel of liberation, not from political oppression only, they proclaim a gospel of liberation from that which is really enslaving, which is sin. The, the Jews of their time wanted liberation from the occupying Romans, but they didn't recognize their great need for liberation from that which enslaves their hearts. They don't just need Rome to be gone, they need for their idolatries to be conquered. The preaching of the Lordship of Jesus was completely total. After the apostles begin to go out, then Christ, uh, excuse me, before the apostles begin to go out, Christ sends his Holy Spirit and enables them to be witnesses. And that word witnesses means martyrs, those who will pay the ultimate price to testify of the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only his real life and death, but his victorious resurrection and his defeating of all of our enemies. It is the very same spirit who enabled Peter on the day of Pentecost, who also enables Paul and Silas to boldly preach in Thessalonica. And what they do in that day is they give a spark to a flame that will never go out in that city. So having recalled the dramatic beginnings of the Thessalonian church, Paul is then able to continually recall these saints in his prayers. I want you just to imagine for a second, you're the Apostle Paul, and you have powerfully preached in the city of Thessalonica for three or four weeks, and you've probably entertained meetings all week long with those who have begun to receive the word, uh, after the Sabbath day is over, that throughout the rest of the week, there, he probably entertained visitors and people were beginning to see it and the Holy Spirit was causing the lights to come on as these Jews who knew the Old Testament were beginning to have an understanding of, of the necessity of the Christ to suffer and to be resurrected. I want you to imagine now on the final day that you're preaching that at the end of that scenario, there's a riot that breaks out and the city is in an uproar such that some of the unbelieving Jews who haven't received you accuse you before the political government. It's a very interesting thing in our culture. Actually, 
courts have usually refused when someone starts making a doctrinal dispute. They just say this is outside of our jurisdiction. And they're wise to do that. But the point is, I, I don't think that this event would have been uh, hard, to, hard to remember for Paul. When he says he's always making mention of them, he probably remembered Thessalonica as a city where, man, it was a hard fight, but we had fruit. He probably recalled the surety, or, or rather his assurance was from recalling the powerful demonstration of the Holy Spirit in the transformation of people, not just in the delivery of a message or two, but he began to see by the Holy Spirit's work that the Thessalonians were really starting to be transformed. That's why we're seeing this passage as a proof of the power of the gospel. Paul says that he and his team, we always give thanks or we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a humble way to say that. He's not just saying, we remember being among you. No, he's thanking God for their continuation of the work that they started. This habit of persistent thanksgiving for the saints must be the pattern for all spiritual leadership. This is so important as elders, deacons, lay leaders, people who lead Bible studies, pastors, even evangelists. We must become people who constantly remember the saints of God in thanksgiving, not begrudging prayers. It's so important that we do this. Why? Because God is pleased when we acknowledge and thank him for what is rather than when we begrudgingly accuse him of not bringing about fruit. Were there problems in the Thessalonian church? Absolutely. Of course there were problems in the Thessalonian church. They were they were people who were converted to Jesus Christ in a culture that was like ours in in idolatry, in paganism, in uh, sexual immorality, in the boasting of pride, in the love and lust of power. Of course there were problems in the Thessalonian church. Did that shape the way Paul began his prayers for the Thessalonians? No, it didn't. He said, we always give thanks. Paul says that he remembers them with thanksgiving for what God started in a seed form will come to completion. As Christians, following the example of Christ at the feeding of the 5,000, we must likewise thank God for what we have. I believe the the central point of the feeding of the 5,000 was the demonstration of Jesus as a king who feeds his people in the desert. He has food and drink for his people in the wilderness. However, another great takeaway from the feeding of the 5,000 was when the Lord Jesus was presented with five loaves and two fish, he didn't say no. In fact, he, he lifts it up to heaven and he thanks God for what he has, knowing what he's about to do. And interestingly, he gives it away and, and really it's clear that the disciples are the one who multiply the food. As the Lord Jesus passes it to the disciples and the disciples pass it to the people, he's, he's performing a miracle and a picture of what it will be like for the gospel to go forth through the apostles. What Jesus does must be our imitation. We must begin to 
be like Christ in our prayers for God's people. It is not enough that we recognize the needs. We must begin with thanksgiving. And in that thanksgiving, God is pleased to bless it. Paul's thanksgiving was based upon his confidence of God's continual work by the Holy Spirit to bring these Thessalonian saints to maturity. He says in verse four, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. I think it's an interesting phrase that he's just said, and it it should sound a little weird to come on the heels, having said that our message came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with conviction, and then he immediately boasts of saying, you know what kind of men we were. That seems a little strange, doesn't it? He just has given all credit to the Holy Spirit. And then he boasts of, you know what kind of men we were. How we worked among you proved this. Paul here can joyfully give thanks because he knows that God's election is sure. That is to say, we know that you are chosen, Thessalonian saints, because the truth came and they, they repented of their sin and they followed God. Then in this final phrase, which seems a little bit strange to the ear, Paul directly connects the effectiveness of their ministry with the authenticity of their motivation. You who are about to be ordained and you who lead Bible studies and you who encourage one another, look at what Paul has said. I I just want to return to the verse. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. How is the purity of the motivation of the workers of Paul's team, Paul, Silas, Timothy, others who went with him, how is that motivation connected with the power of the Holy Spirit, full conviction? It's connected in this way. It is connected because Paul is able to accurately, boldly boast about the purity of their team. If Paul and his team had been charlatans, like preaching the gospel for financial gain, the Holy Spirit would not have been pleased to work among them. It is true that Paul at one place also says that he loves that Christ is preached, whether in pretense or in truth. However, that is not the way to justify mixture of motives in ministry. Paul is able to boast in this, that God requires his ministers to walk in truth, abstaining from entangling sin and working with pure motives. Do you have impure motives for sharing the gospel? Keep sharing the gospel while you purify your motives. Paul said this to Timothy, part of his team and a fellow author of this letter. In 2 Timothy 2.21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, look at this phrase, useful to the master of the house. Who's the master of the house? The Lord Jesus, ready for every good work. If any minister of the gospel cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel that is useful, not a vessel that is useless. Because Paul and his team walked as imitators of Christ, the Thessalonians were quick to adopt their manner of life. 
Your people can know this. And in fact, a people do know this, that the authenticity of their ministers is either true or it's filled with pretense. There's a sense in which in a congregation you can smell whether or not their ministers are being true, are living and walking in the light, or they are living in darkness. The reason why is because like affects like. The purity of the ministers, the purity of the evangelists, the purity of the elders is deeply important to the health of the church. And this is why as as people in a church, we ought to pray for our elders as much as we are able to remember. Look at what happens in verse six. They knew what kind of men they proved to be. And verse six, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. I want to read verse six again. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I think it's a danger when we read our Bibles and never re-examine the way we've read verses before. There can, there can be a problem with familiarity with the scriptures. Never let this deter you from returning to familiar passages. However, I will say that as I was reading this passage over and over again, I saw a problem in the way I was reading it. And I did diligent search across multiple commentaries. And though I'm not trained in the Greek, I did look at a pronoun to help me figure something out. Because I, I know a little, but not, not enough. Enough to be dangerously wrong. <laughs> don't, don't worry that you don't know the Greek. The, the English is pretty good. Some of the English is pretty good. <clears throat> the reason why I spent so much time in this verse is because I thought to myself, okay, how did they become imitators of the apostles? Look at verse six. You became imitators of us and of the Lord... Did the Lord Jesus receive the word? Yes, but I don't think that's what he's referring to. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is what I hope to show from this verse. The saints imitated the apostles and Christ by rejoicing in the midst of persecution. There's one way to read this verse that I think is wrong, that the Thessalonian saints received the word and they received some joy. That the joy was just deposited to them by the Holy Spirit and they had nothing to do to receive it with joy. That is to say, I believe Paul's commending the Thessalonians because he's describing how they received it, not what they received. They didn't just receive joy and therefore they imitated the apostles. No, they received affliction and they chose joy. And that's how they imitated the apostles and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I think this is so important is because this is exactly how they could imitate the Lord Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this is, that this is the way that the Lord Jesus Christ endured the cross. It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see what happened? Jesus Christ, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. But now, because of that, 
the joy of being with his people, the joy of being at the right hand of the throne of God, the joy of being the king over all, receiving the title that he had been pledged. That is what Jesus did, and that's how these Thessalonians imitated the Lord Jesus. Likewise, they imitated the apostles. In Acts 5, verse 41, after being thrown in prison, after being interrogated by the, the council, after being beaten, it says in verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's not as if these Thessalonians received the word and affliction and, oh, the Holy Spirit just deposited joy in them. No, I believe Paul is saying you receive the word with two ways, with affliction and with joy. You, it came with affliction, and you fought for joy. I believe it's vital to read it this way, because we must learn how to fight for joy in the midst of persecution and trials. Haven't gone through a trial recently? Trials come. Haven't gone through persecution for, the, for your faith? Persecution's coming. Is it going to come out in the world? Maybe not. Is it going to come in the church? Maybe. Are parts of the church going to start rebelling against other parts of the church in the social movements, in the, in the liberalizing of the, the mainline branches? Is that going to affect the rest of the evangelical world? You better be ready. Persecution is coming. Trials are coming. Why? Because all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer, period. I just want to read in four places, excuse me, three places where we are told how to imitate the apostles and the Lord Jesus and how we are supposed to fight for joy. James 1, 2 through 3, if you were here during our series on James, you may remember this. <clears throat> he gives a command and then he gives a means or, or a instruction and then the How? He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How or why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So how am I supposed to count it joy when I'm being persecuted? Because I know that that persecution is going to produce something in me. Steadfastness. I'm not going to waver between whether I'm embarrassed about the Lord Jesus. If I suffer well with joy in the midst of this moment, then it's going to, by the Holy Spirit, something is going to be produced in me where I'm not going to be washed to and fro, moved around. I'm going to be steadfast. Hebrews 10:34. The Hebrew writer is commending those who he's addressing for you, the, the audience of the Hebrew letter, the readers of the Hebrew letter, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How did they do it? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do you own anything that you like? Do you, do you have a car that you like? Do you have instruments that you like? I've got a piece of artwork that I really like. It's a, it's a reproduction. It's not an original. I'm not rich enough to have any originals of anything worth keeping, but, but uh, I, I have things that I like. And the Hebrew writer is saying to his audience, you joyfully accepted the fact that at one point in the persecution against the Christians, people came into your house and took your stuff. 
Why did you do it? Why were you able to joyfully accept the plundering of your property? When they came and took your car because you were a Christian, or when they came and took your cattle when you were a Christian, or they came and took your gold because you were a Christian, how did they do it? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession. So the question would be, can you weather the storms of persecution with joy if you don't know what you actually have? The Hebrew writer would clearly say no. I want to I look at the, another final idea from Hebrews 11, 24 and 25. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. It's important in the context here to remember that the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he was next in line, perhaps, of being, being a, a pharaoh. We don't know if he would have been a pharaoh or not. But remember, just like Rome, Egypt worshipped their pharaohs as gods. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. In the prior verses, we saw people having things taken from them, but choosing joy because they know what they have. Now here, the Hebrew writer says Moses isn't choosing the joy of Egypt, the passing pleasures of being called Pharaoh's daughter. Rather, verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to a reward. Moses was not able to make that choice because of some moral resolve that he just decided, I'm not going to be enticed by those things. He didn't resolve to do it. Rather, he expelled the desire for worthless pleasures with a superior pleasure. He knew that he had Christ and that reward was powerful. The saints' joyfulness, the the Thessalonian saints' joyfulness in the midst of these sorrows was so potent, was so virile, that is, was so infectious that the opposition that came against the gospel actually amplified the gospel. As these people in Thessalonia are shouting, they've changed the world. They've said there's another king. Other people begin to think, oh, they're they're changing the world? (laughs) There's another king? Let's hear more about that. The, the gospel, as it began to bear fruit in the Thessalonians, produced a joy in the midst of trials. And that is something that the world will never have because it is a joy that is the product of the Holy Spirit. Verse eight, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. What's one of the most common things in the American evangelical world to think about the the Chinese Christians? We think they're pretty amazing, don't we? Have you ever heard some of the stories of what's going on in China? I don't even try to find out and we hear about these things, of churches being torn down, of Christians being murdered and persecuted, of Bibles that they're trying to change so that they might be able to shift the doctrine so that they would get sidetracked. And what do we hear? How do we hold them in regard? We hold them in high regard because the opposition which comes against the gospel when it is responded to in joy causes an amplification such that the enemy cannot stop. And in fact, they regret what they've done. Your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. 
the Thessalonians know that they have a high reputation among God's people. This report that was spread of the Thessalonian church was not just joy in the midst of trials, but a total transformation from idolatry to true worship. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. So the persecution and the joys which have been used to face the persecution, that has not been the only thing that has been told about the Thessalonian saints, but also this, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. How can you joyfully accept the plundering of your property if you still want that property? You can't. They turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. These Thessalonian saints are therefore those who worship in spirit and in truth. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said to the Syrophoenician woman in John 4? There's an hour coming. The Father is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and truth. And here, Paul says to the Thessalonians, you have returned to God having turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. Being delivered from what actually enslaved them, they are able to finally truly live. These are real human beings. This is what humans were made to do. Idols, and we must be careful, idols are not just pieces of wood overlain with gold and silver and precious stones. Rather, idols, as the New Testament explains, are any inordinate desires. What is an inordinate desire? It is, a, it is a desire that is out of order. Do I need food to continue to live? Yes. Do I need the word of God more than food? Yes. Do I know that all the time? No. Do I need shelter? Yes, I need shelter. Do I need water? Yes. Do I need to be at home with the Lord? Do I need the Holy Spirit to produce in me in abiding with Christ more than I need other things? Yes, I actually need those things more. I don't realize it and I don't live like it. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians and the Colossians, he explains in a litany of sins, he uses the word coveting or covetousness. And then he says, which is idolatry. This is why I think idolatry is probably one of the most important parts of this first chapter in Thessalonians. The transfer from idolatry to serve the living and true God is the power of the gospel. It is the fruit, it is the fruit of the gospel, how someone goes from loving things to loving God. Before seeing the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the Thessalonians didn't want God. That's what covetousness means. When you see a car that's nicer than yours and you say, I really want that car. When you see the latest iPhone and you say, I really want that iPhone. It's not wrong to have desires for things in the world. It's when they become inordinate. When you begin to start to do things in your life, when it takes over your thought processes and it takes over your mind and you're not able to think about anything other than having that thing, I'm not married yet, I want that woman, I want that man, I want that job, I need to have this role in the church. 
This is what covetousness is. It's idolatry, Paul says. It's not just wanting something to have a better life or, or to have a, a little bit of uh, efficiency in, in the way you do your chores or manage your household. It's, it's the latching onto of your affections such that other things begin to get pushed out. That's what idolatry is. Before the Thessalonians turn to God, they don't see him as wanting him. They see nothing desirable in God. They would rather have things. In Romans 1, Paul describes to the Romans in his letter what idolatry is. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's what idolatry is. Paul explains that the pagan idolatry, the forming of wood shaped in the, the form of a god and overlaying it with a metal and putting precious stones in it, they, Paul says before they started doing that work, they made a great exchange in their thoughts and their minds. They did not see God as desirable, as glorious, as worthy of being worshipped as anything commendable, and they got rid of the knowledge of God, and they wanted instead things, creatures which will die. And they began to use these creatures, and they began to make them into signs by which they lived, and they began to worship and bow down to them. In the preaching of the gospel, however, these Thessalonian saints have been granted open eyes. Upon seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, they then recognize his supreme worth. That's how you turn from idols, coveting, wanting things, to wanting God. In the power of the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit transformed the Thessalonian saints such that they began to see that God is better I want God now instead of wanting things and stuff and people and power and, and all of the stuff I'm clinging on to. That's who the living and true God is. When a person who does not know God begins to receive the gospel as they hear who God is, they're transformed by the Holy Spirit from wanting things to wanting him. That is why they turned from idols to serve the living and the true God, because they don't want the idols anymore. This is who God is demonstrated to be through Christ in the gospel, that he, God, would leave a glorious estate and take on a fragile, weak humanity, prone to sickness and prone to tiredness and prone to aches and pr prone to trouble. And he would bear my condemnation and my sin. And he would deliver me from that which enslaves me and deliver me from futile meaninglessness so that I can know him and enjoy him. I want that. That's what the preaching of the gospel is designed to do, that the Holy Spirit would use the announcement of the free offer of forgiveness and the possibility of knowing God, that that would so move a sinner to be transformed so that they could love him instead of not know him or hate him. That's what the power of the gospel is all about. It's not a gospel which announces to you, you're now free, work out everything on your own. Rather, the Holy Spirit is working within you, transforming you so that you don't want those things anymore. This is why we have to fight for joy. 
because we have to know what we have. We have to know what the reward is. The reward is not just a mansion in heaven. The reward is not just gold in heaven or a nice meal in heaven. There's a description of the end things, the, the last things, which talks about one of, my, one of my favorite promises that there will be this meal on the mountain of the house of the Lord and they're gonna say, serve well-aged wine and fatty meats. I love that promise. <laughs> is the point, is the point of that promise that we're getting steak in heaven? No, that's not the point. The point of that promise is to say there's something much greater than a ribeye. There's something much greater than having food when you don't have food now. No, you're going to know God forever. You're going to see who God is without the stain of sin which prevents you from knowing him all the time forever. You're not going to deal with little tiny trivial things of wanting this little piece of gold, which is just a bunch of atoms that won't even make it after the new heavens and the earth, new earth are here. That is what the gospel is. It's a deliverance from inordinate desire such that we desire God when before we, we just didn't even think about him. And in fact, that's often sometimes worse than actively hating him. It's just he means nothing to me. I'd rather have this car. I'd rather have this job. I'd rather have this cell phone. That's, that's what the gospel is all about. It's about delivering us from our spiritual blindness such that we begin to recognize how precious Christ is. That, that everything that we have in God through Jesus Christ is ours and it's our treasure. Therefore, If we claim to have come back to the truth, we, like the Thessalonian saints, must refuse to turn back to the idols which we formerly served. This is how to apply this verse, that they turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. And if we who claim to serve the living and the true God actually do, then we must ask him to root out all those little tiny demigods that we serve and bow down to. We must continually seek to see who God is that we might rightly esteem him and therefore desire him. One of the ways that we can do this is by adopting a mindset which in the church fathers, they use the Latin phrase, the coram dio, which means the presence of God, the active presence of God. Living coram dio means to live before God, to live with an awareness that God is present to us. That as part of the people of God, the Lord Jesus and the Father are present by the Holy Spirit who is given to us as a deposit. And we begin to live in awareness day by day, moment by moment, hour by hour, that God is here, that he has not left me that the Lord Jesus did come to me through the Holy Spirit. The reason this is such an important thing is because unless I am continually aware of the pleasure of knowing God, then all the false pleasures really do seem appetizing. And it is only by expelling them by a superior pleasure, by the pleasure of knowing Jesus, that I can actually defeat temptation. This is I believe, the way that the New Testament tells us to fight. It tells us to fight by making 
ourselves aware of the sure mercies of God and the promises in the gospel such that we would not return to idols that we formerly destroyed. As these saints serve God, they eagerly, therefore, anticipate the coming of the Lord Jesus. I would agree with Brother Andy in the Sunday school hour as he said, it was better that the Lord Jesus went away so that we could have the Holy Spirit, but I'm also really looking forward to the time where he comes back. And I believe that we ought to do that. I think that is commended in the scriptures. The transformation of the Thessalonians wasn't just to stop wanting for idols, but to eagerly, as verse 10 says, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Though troubled by much affliction, We ought not to despair, but we ought to eagerly await the return of our great king. The Lord Jesus is coming back with thousands upon thousands of angels. He is coming back to judge his enemies. He is currently defeating them now, but there is a day when he will return and he will gather up his bride in purity and we will live forever with him. He will completely redeem his people such that none of the wrath that he brings against sin will be applied to them, but be assured he will bring upon a great wrath on those who do not bow the knee. And that is exactly what Paul says should be your hope. You don't have to worry about defeating your greatest enemies, the enemies who are bigger than you. You don't have to deal with the sins of the world and all of the systems of injustice and all of the oppressive things which you can never even poke at. Jesus Christ will settle all accounts forever, period. There will be no injustice in the Lord's return. Rest assured, people of God, he will defeat your enemies. He's defeating them now and he will defeat them finally. And he will bring great wrath upon those who do not honor him as we saw last week in Psalm 2. Nevertheless, you can eagerly wait because of the reward that's coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. We thank you that by the apostles, you have sent your gospel into the world and that that gospel has been faithfully handed down through your scriptures. And now by the preaching of your word, you have brought us into a great community of the redeemed. We pray therefore, Lord, that you would fully deliver us from any idols that we are maintaining or returning to. Lord, whether it be lust or greed or pride or a desire to be seen as great or or a, a want of things that we just shouldn't even have, that you, Lord, would deliver us from the smallness and the weakness of those things which currently capture our hearts and that you would deliver us to see who you are. We pray, God, that you would open our eyes to the beauty and the glory of what we have awaiting for us in you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.